Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People say we don't talk about the Rolling Stones enough on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast, Marcus. So we're going to do more than that. We're going to dig in deep. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is an album trio. We call it the Unholy Trio of the Rolling Stones. And we're going to talk about this time period in Stones history on the podcast this week, where it's about the Stones turning from the 60 Stones into what would lead to them being the Stones that they have been through the decades now, since the 70s. The band grew up at this point. You see the change from the previous album leading into it. It ended up creating three of the greatest rock and roll albums together. A triumvirate of sorts. They've been up and down. They've had hits, but Mick has been known to say that at that time in the Stones' history, they were all pretty much broke. Between the cost of living and the taxes in England, which were oppressive, a lot of rock stars fled. But the Stones were hanging in there so far as they head from 1967 into 68. And that's where they did their Satanic Majesty's Request, released in late 67. A lot of people dismissed it early on as their answer to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Maybe it was. Uh, Maybe they had a a we'll-show-them attitude, which we've discussed. It was also a foray into psychedelic rock, which I don't think they felt that groove as much as as they felt the blues and the soul and the rock and roll groove. Yeah, that too. too. I think they really felt that much more... That was who they are. And if you go back to that day on the platform with the albums, blues, early rock and roll, not psychedelia. It's a key point in our story this week, which is really about them turning from that time period through the end of one decade into another and reinventing themselves in a way where they take control of their own legacy for now and forever moving forward. Very important stuff. 
And let's take a little bit of a look back to the previous album because of the content of the contributions by the members of the Stones and how that's about to change on Beggar's Banquet. First off, Her Majesty's Request was produced by the Stones. Maybe that didn't help. But the thing I noticed right away was the massive contribution on multiple instruments of Brian Jones to what was the basic crux of this album. Marcus, he not only played Mellotron and flute, percussion and guaro, saxophone, other stuff, all kinds of instruments, including the theremin, were part of his role on that album. She comes in colors everywhere. She combs her hair. She's like a rainbow. Coming colors in the air. Everywhere. She comes in And when you get to Beggar's Banquet, you start to see Jones withdrawing. And he withdraws more and more as he removes himself from the swim, if you will, of the creative side of the Rolling Stones, which leads to his departure. I was looking over Satanic, and he also played the harp. The harp on a rock and roll record. He played the recorder, which is something that we played in elementary school that was plastic and annoyed the crap out of our parents. So this is where they're at moving into Beggar's Banquet, which is produced by Jimmy Miller. I think they may have realized by that point that they needed his guiding hand to make the best record they could, which is what they were on track for with the songs they were gathering. Released at the end of 1968, the album Beggar's Banquet originally was supposed to include a cover which was a beat-up old toilet with stuff written on the wall and the uh, title and the Stones name scrawled above it. And one of my favorite parts of that little drawing, and you can see it on the Wikipedia page uh, for the Stones and that album, is like somebody drew a hand on the wall reaching out from behind the toilet, all part of the artwork. They were going to make the album cover until Decca said, no, no, no. And I think that was another nail in the coffin of the relationship between the Rolling Stones and their organization and Decca Records, don't you? I do. Also, during the recording of Sympathy for the Devil, Mick had brought in the lyric, I shouted out, who killed Kennedy? Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6th. 1968 with senator kennedy at the time of his death were his wife ethel his sisters mrs stephen smith miss patricia lawford brother-in-law mr stephen smith his sister-in-law mrs john f kennedy he was uh, 42 years old. The next day, Bobby Kennedy was murdered, so they changed the lyric to Kennedy's. Decca said, take it out. The Stones said, fuck you, we're the Rolling Stones. We're not taking it out. And they left it in. All part of the rising tensions between the label and the band at this stage over creativity. And guess what? The Stones were right. They had it in the song, and they had to change it because of something that happened while they were writing about history. Art has a political side to it always. There's always an undertone in some way, shape, or form to art. 
Working with Jimmy Miller was a younger Glenn Johns, who'd become a producer in his own right as an engineer, and he said that this album signaled the Stones' coming of age. He said, quote, I think that the material was far better than anything they'd done before. I'd have to agree with you there, Glenn. It's Beggar's Banquet. What an amazing album. Let's talk about the songs, of course, starting off with Sympathy for the Devil, ironically. It also shows the development and very quick growth of Mick and Keith as a songwriting team. Up until this point, the Rolling Stones was really the three guys, Jones, Richards, Jagger. And as Brian was withdrawing, Keith and Mick were really pulling together as a songwriting team. And I think you hear them and feel them taking the next step in this album. And the proof is in the songs on Beggar's Banquet. Even though Jones would contribute the slide guitar on No Expectations as an example. Or another example of what I'm trying to illustrate here, I guess, is Jigsaw Puzzle, where you have Jones is contributing very heavily with the Mellotron, right? Mm-hmm. It's really that guitar, Keith, Mick, the way he plaintively sings the vocals. It's, it's almost like a white boy blues on Jigsaw Puzzle. Think about it. They were going through a really rough time at that point in their careers, and this is what came out of them. Their blues, they bent the blues their way, and no expectations. That slide guitar from Brian Jones is absolutely gorgeous. And I was reading in an article, the author said that everybody in the band said that that was the one song in the album where Brian was the Brian that they knew. In the old days, we flipped them over and played side two, and you were never slow to do that with this album because Street Fighting Man kicks off side two. 1968, Russia sends its tanks into Czechoslovakia to put down a rebellion against their oppressive regime. Sound familiar, Marcus? Yeah, the Cold War was uh, raging pretty hard at this point. The guys saw what was happening over in Czechoslovakia on TV, and they started writing Street Fighting Man about the guys who were standing up to the regime in power then called the USSR. Street Fighting Man seems like it's as much of an anthem now as at any time since it was released. That song was originally demoed under a different name called Did Everyone Pay Their Dues? You have to look for it on YouTube. The lyrics are totally different, but the music is the same, and how it evolved into Street Fighting Man is pretty impressive. Yeah, 
fucking shit, man. I can't believe I've never heard that before right now. So, thank you, brother. <laughs> you bad. <laughs> you know, the rest of this album isn't exactly a slouch. You know, Prodigal Son may be overlooked by some, but it's a favorite amongst the Shadoobi fans, you know? Stray Cat Blues, man, that is some unbelievable stuff in that song. Just amazing. All the parts working together. It's kind of where the ancient art of weaving comes into full effect. There's another sonic side to the Stones that starts to develop, and it'll come into play in the next few albums majorly. Factory Girl is a good example early on. It's something different, and it certainly is a big part of side two of Beggar's Banquet. And to shut the album down with Salt of the Earth, the perfect way to end what they had done or to complete or wrap up what they had done. A little salt for your dinner, sir. (laughs) about that one is the way Keith and Nick share vocals and I think the fans have made that one of their favorites through the decades. Beggar's Banquet, the first step in this week's episode, talking about the evolution of the Stones from where they were as a 60s band under DECA, under freestanding all-American Rolling Stones Records, Atlantic Records band into the 70s and beyond. Liner notes for you on this album, Marcus. In addition to Jimmy Miller uh, singing along on Sympathy for the Devil, he always liked to take part in the studio efforts. Dave Mason plays the Shania on Street Fighting Man, part of that din of sound that creates Street Fighting Man. And you got Rick Gretsch from uh, Traffic playing fiddle on Factory Girl, too. Lots of neat stuff. And, of course, this is Nicky Hopkins' wheelhouse. He's become a member de facto on piano of the Rolling Stones, playing on almost everything in the studio. And he's there in full force on Beggar's Banquet. Did you know that Sympathy for the Devil was originally called The Devil Is My Name? I was zero seconds ago old when I found that one out, Marcus. Thank you. (laughs) At this point, Marcus, the relationship between the Stones and Decca, not good. And Andrew Lugoldum has the idea that we've got so many albums we have to give them to fulfill our contract. Let's give them a big hits package. You know, that's what they were doing. Through the Past Darkly, which we did an episode called that about the Stones, uh, comes out in September of 69. 
it's got all kinds of stuff on it familiar songs and not so familiar songs some b-sides and some phased cookies as they would call them later you know the u.s edition again drastically different than the british edition so if you have one or the other it's a different collector's item and of course it's the is it hexagonal uh, it's the shape of a stop sign isn't it hexagonal the, the cover or no yeah, octagonal it's octagonal i can't i can't keep my octagonal straight well beggar's banquet goes platinum so you know jimmy miller's getting the call to produce their next record which becomes let it bleed Released around Thanksgiving in 1969, everybody took quick note of the cover, man. Uh, you know, the, 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 the turntable above the turntable with the record playing underneath the cake, that kind of stuff. And looking at the tape stuck in the layers, all kinds of neat shit that they put into the imagery on the cover of this album, which would turn out to be their last studio album for Decca Records as they start to try to find their way free of that contract. And what would come next is historic and hysterical. <laughs> also part of the setup for Let It Bleed is the arrival of a young lad named Mick Taylor. Fresh out of John Mayall's Blues Breakers, he was already considered the hot hand. And so the Stones found him and put him in their lineup. And by the time they were in the studio, Marcus doing Let It Bleed, Brian Jones was down to minimal contributions, playing congas on one track and auto harp on another. Now, it is the conga line on Midnight Rambler, which is an important part of the song. His ability to play didn't wane, but his interest did. And Mick Taylor kind of gets eased into things, playing slide on one track, country honk, and electric guitar on Live With Me. By the way, the bass on Live With Me, played by one Keith Richards, not by Bill Wyman, who wasn't at the studio that day. And the supporting cast starts to expand. We see the arrival of Bobby Keys playing saxophone on one track and Stewart back on piano in addition to Nicky Hopkins. They get Byron Berline in the mix for Country Honk. Mary Clayton famously delivering her vocals on Gimme Shelter, the opening track. And you've got people like Ry Cooter in the mix and Leon Russell, Jack Nietzsche and Al Cooper. Come on, man. All kinds of great people. How they were able to pull this whole group together to jump in and participate in the record. I would love to hear the stories behind that. It's an interesting and quirky and very different cast of musicians. I mean, side one, Gimme Shelter. Their take on Robert Johnson's Love in Vain, which they absolutely make their own country honk which is the country version of honky tonk women <laughs> live with me which i mentioned before is just one of the most badass riffs ever and then let it bleed one of the great sing-alongs because we all need someone 
we can lean on. The fact that they brought the country sound into it and pulled it off the way they did was fantastic. Yeah, the other thing about it was they took uh, Byron Burline, they ran a long mic out to the street and set it down on the sidewalk or put it on a short, you know, stand on the sidewalk. And he just kind of recorded the fiddle part while he was out on the sidewalk. And you can hear the cars going by. That's actually the cars that were beeping going by. Like somebody says, hey, there's a guy fiddling on the sidewalk. Beep, beep. You're on a Stones record. Who knew, right? (laughs) All right, Marcus, I'm going to flip it over. Because that's what we do in the vinyl days. You flip it over. And Midnight fucking Rambler comes out of the speakers. Now, I know the live version of Midnight Rambler is more popular, more favorite, and all that. But when you first heard this sucker, oh my. Did you hear about the Midnight Rambler? Everybody got to go. But did you hear about the Midnight Rambler? You want to shirt the kitchen I was a little older when I first heard this late 70s, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing as a kid. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so different than anything else I had ever heard. It ended- it's because your exposures were different because yeah. of how old you were and what was out. And like most people, you became interested in what was new to you. And listening to this with my little brother, my little brother ended up becoming a hardcore Stone's Head, and he was two years younger than me. Keith gets front and center on the next track on side two of Let It Bleed with You Got the Silver, You Got the Go. Oh, another fan freaking favorite. Marcus, when you feel like jumping the fire chaos boy and you hear Monkey Man from the Stones, does it make you want to jump all around the room? Monkey Man is one of those album cuts that's almost as popular as the big hits. It's one of those that the Stones fans know. It's one of those that people who listen to the Stones back in those days knew. It is a classic Rolling Stones song. A turntable hit out of the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, you hear songs on the radio a lot. It doesn't matter if they were the focus track, the single, or any other shit. And that's kind of what happened with You Can't Always Get What You Want, because it's seven and a half minutes. They weren't going to turn it into a single, but radio wouldn't stop playing the damn thing. So everybody loves it now. Hmm. <laughs> I'm a- 
So we've achieved liftoff. With Beggar's Banquet, the Stones come back and sell a million. With Let It Bleed, they double that and sell two million in the States. Platinum everywhere. Platinum for everybody. (laughs) Really great stuff. Really great stuff. And they begin to take the fuck over. It's a wild ride already, Marcus. But when we return to the scene of the crime, uh, we're going to find the evidence, the absolute stone cold evidence that the Rolling Stones are as they are billed in the movie on stage and then get your yayas out as the world's greatest rock and roll band. Next. On the imbalanced history of rock and roll. You know, man, I've been meaning to ask you, you did the big cancer ride down the shore. How were the boldfoot socks on your feet while you were riding down there and in the rain, too? Tell you what, those boldfoot socks were tough in the inclement weather. And between the boot covers and the socks, my feet didn't get stinky, wet, musty, or anything nasty like that. I did not get gnarly feet at all. Gnarly feet, bad. Uh, Old foot socks, feet protected, good. Seriously, they felt great. They wicked the sweat out of me because we were riding and we were riding at a good pace. And Only the socks are going to wick the sweat out of you, buddy. That's all I want to say. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the things they're really good at. And that helps you to get like a drier ride, like between the sock and your feet when it's getting wicked away from it. Oh, we sweat big time when we ride. When your feet are moving at that pace for as long as they are, you need protection for your feet. Your feet are important. You can't do what you want to do without your feet. So you need your feet protected. So beat your feet to boldfoot.com and check out the wide variety and styles of socks they offer right there on their website. And don't forget to put an imbalance 15 in the code box to save 15% on your first purchase at boldfoot.com. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice, fresh craft beer at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. And you can also visit Jamie's House of Music in Delco, to get that very fresh and tasty Crooked Eye beer. Their music schedule's picked up at Jamie's House of Music. I follow them on Facebook, so you see a lot more shows going on there. And anytime they're open for shows, you can get your Crooked Eye there, get a growler, and take some home. Or you can head to Hatboro, and their schedule's picked up a lot, too. And my vinyl night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want. Or I'll bring mine. You can't forget that Friday nights from 4 to 11, there's live music over at Crooked Eye and open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of the month. First, third, fifth. I can't do math when I'm drinking at Crooked Eye. Well, the brews are cold and they're always fresh, always the favorites and something new on the board there at the brewery location in Hapro. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014, we thank them for their support of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. I know we often come back from break and say, man, I really needed that pint. Man, I really needed that fucking pint. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Rolling Stones. We're rolling through their unholy trio of albums that changed them from a band in the 60s to the band of the 70s. Uh, We started out talking about the pre-Beggar's Banquet, Beggar's Banquet itself, 
we rolled through the hits darkly and into uh, Let It Bleed and the departure of Brian Jones, who had only been really doing a couple tracks by the very end for Let It Bleed. Yeah, that was the time he was fired from the band, which was the right move for both Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. But sadly, tragedy followed him. And like a month later, he was found dead in the pool. And if you listen to our old episode about Brian Jones, you can find out more about how that whole time period went down and what happened then and information about the documentary, which you need to see. After Jones's death, the Stones hold a concert in Hyde Park. Already planned, they dedicated it to Brian. Okay, now listen. Now, will you just cool it just for a minute? Because I really would like to say something for Brian. I just want to say something that was written by Shelley, and I think it goes with what happened to Brian. Peace. Peace. He's not dead. He does not sleep. He has awakened from the dreams of life. It's we that are lost in stormy visions and keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife. And in a mad trance, we strike with a spirit's knife, invulnerable nothing. We decay like corpses in the charnel. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day. And cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clays. The one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many-colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, and if thou wouldst be with that, which thou dost seek, follow, where all is fled. And move forward with young Mick Taylor. And that includes a set of shows at the end of 1969 at Madison Square Garden that would not only become the album Get Your Yaya's Out, but the basis for most of the movie Gimme Shelter. But Get Your Yaya's Out, man. One of my favorite live albums of all time. This is one of my all-time favorite live albums as well, The Stones are at the top of their game during these live recordings. They open with Jumpin' Jack Flash and just pummel you right from the get-go. They didn't take it as a here's a live album version of our latest studio album. They really went back and plugged in the hits from their early days like Conky Tonk Women.
pulling tracks from all three nights at the Garden and one from a show in Baltimore, which was Love in Vain. It is Get Your Yaya's Out. And I don't know if you ever saw the uh, mini documentary about the, the making of the cover, which is Charlie Watts in a Uncle Sam hat with a guitar and a mule on a runway. It was cold and miserable. And all I could tell you, it's amazing that Charlie was able to put on a, a smile face on the cover of that one, it's Get Your Yaya's Out, which, as you mentioned to me earlier, Lester Bang said, I have no doubt that it's the best rock concert ever put on record. Hey, Lester, that's because they pulled from three different nights to get the best tracks, bro. <laughs> he knew that. He's yeah, Lester Bangs. He knew that. <laughs> he called it that so the kids would go buy it and check out the amazing tunes put together by the Stones on Yaya's. <laughs> <laughs> I got the box set, which has all kinds of stuff. If you want to go down the rabbit hole, amazing stuff. It's all the session discs. It's crazy. Yeah, they've uh, added all of those bonus recordings to the uh, Wikipedia page, so you can even just look at it if you are interested and tempted. And seeing that list may make you want to go out and buy it all. (laughs) (laughs) So Yaya's hits the bins, right? Yeah. And then the big screen, the Rolling Stones and Gimme Shelter. Amazing stuff, man. They are hitting on all cylinders as they're getting ready to exit DECA and start Rolling Stones records. Everybody seems to be ready. Are you ready? Well, they've done the West Coast and they've done all sorts of other places in America and now they're in New York. For the first time in three years, the Rolling Stones! The Rolling Stones! And I forgot, that's where you see the footage of Charlie Watts and the donkey filming the uh, cover shoot for Yaya. It's inside Gimme Shelter. That's where I just remembered that. Also, in the film, the story of the Rolling Stones at Altamont. The event that ended the 60s, that concert had a pretty profound impact on the members of the Rolling Stones. They had to witness something so horrific, which ugh, I can't even imagine having to see something that awful. I think it really had an impact on the band moving forward because they started partying a lot harder. Keith, his heroin habit started getting a lot worse and one of the things that I read in the segments about Keith is he started doing heroin to slow down because When they were on the road, they were always going and going and going, so he always had this stimulation. He started using it in a way to help slow down, and of course, as always, the habit got worse and worse and became a problem. That in and of itself could be an entire episode of the podcast, bro. Oh, absolutely. And I hadn't really thought a whole lot about that cause and effect from Altamont. You know, you give reason to take pause and consider that. So that comes out at the end of 1970, and the Rolling Stones are already making their next plans. It'll be their first full album with no Brian Jones involvement. The new Rolling Stones, so to speak, 
fully formed and ready to roll with their normal studio support cast. But unlike most Rolling Stones recording sessions and plans, where there's always, you know, the Stones enter the studio today kind of bombast, with this, they actually kind of skulked around in the middle of the night when they were on tour in America and made their way to Muscle Shoals in Alabama in December of 69. Now, when they were at Muscle Shoals, they cut three songs, Marcus, that would be on the album, Wild Horses. the great Jim Dickinson, who was part of the Muscle Shoals team, playing the piano. You Gotta Move, the old Fred McDowell blues song. I guess they were inspired by being down south. And you can almost feel that same energy on Brown Sugar, the one that opens the album and becomes the biggest hit from Sticky Fingers. Makes sense, right? Brown Sugar, Sticky Fingers. (laughs) In all various forms uh, and double entendres that you can think of, I think that works. And these sessions were kept secret from the folks at DECA because they were squirreling away these tracks and the master tapes that they were recording, Marcus, uh, when they were on tour. They kept them with them, and eventually hiding them from DECA paid off as they got out of their contract and were on their way to being self-sufficient and in charge of their own world when they formed Rolling Stones Records in conjunction with Atlantic Records with Marshall Chess involved, son of Leonard Chess, And that logo, Ray, that tongue and lips, they paid 50 pounds to have that cat design it. It was, I know John Pash did a great job with it. He made it full. He made it luscious. He made it sexy. He really kind of pulls you in with the lips and the tongue and he piques your interest. You're like, oh, what is that? What is that? I know it caught my interest in that way. It's based on the Hindu goddess Kali, that design of lips and tongue. Yeah, how about that? I never realized that. Boy, talk about a logo that blew up, became so huge as part of a brand, and really took that band to the stratosphere. You don't have to see a word or a letter. You see that logo, you know it's the Rolling Stones, whatever they're talking about or whatever's next. An amazing time, I can tell you, Marcus, as they went into the uh, 70s with this album, Sticky Fingers, the hits were still the thing, even though FM rock was taking over. And they had it covered on both fronts, if you think about it. You've got hits like Brown Sugar or Wild Horses, right? Yep. And then there were songs that were perfect for FM. Like Can't You Hear Me Knocking with that amazing guitar in the middle.
Don't forget Bitch and Sister Morphine and Dead Flowers that are all cuts that became part of the album rock radio playlists. We all have our favorites amongst all of them on all three albums. The thing is, is that everybody's favorites are different. Like for me, you've mentioned all those great songs. And maybe my favorite song on the album is the last one you haven't mentioned. Moonlight Mile. The atmosphere, the air in it, the air in it. You can feel it, man. The space between. For as much as I love many of the other songs on that album, Wild Horses really stands out to me because I was younger when I heard it and hearing the acoustic guitars together and then later learning that Keith and Mick were playing the acoustic guitars together, it really gives you a feel for their chemistry. You see it a little bit when they're playing together in the studio in the Under the Volcano movie, and it really is intimate, and that's what they have. I guess that's the glimmer twin thing that only the two of them can really plug into, you know, like a Vulcan mind melt for crying out loud. Hidden fact about the Sticky Fingers album project, cover concept and photography by Andy Warhol. Let's talk about that cover, man. The zipper. (laughs) Pissed off moms all over America in 1971. Don't you dare bring that thing in this house. It had an actual zipper in the original issue. And then, of course, it was like, you know, taken out and made into a photo of a zipper. And uh, special releases through the years, the zipper's been returned, but... And everybody was like, wow, only the Stones could get away with that, right? Yep. Going out and getting them to put zippers on every fucking album? At that time, when they were soliciting zippers for the albums, Talon Zippers was the biggest zipper company in the world, and they were like, nah, we don't care, we're not doing it. So they went to the second biggest, or one of the up-and-coming zipper companies called Court Zippers, and Court Zippers is the ones who supplied the zippers for the album cover. Hold on a second, man. You got me looking. Now I got to dig in to look at the album cover. Can you tell it's one of their their zippers? I have no idea. I don't have the actual album cover with me. Yeah, I'm looking at it, man. It must be uh, like their notorious style of the zippers. But, you know, there were some albums that got damaged because of the zipper, too. Absolutely. Hey, man. It was the 70s, dude. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We'll replace that album with a new one if you uh, ruin it with the zipper. But also... Fred Hughes, who was Andy Warhol's business manager, revealed later that the guy on the front of the album cover was not Mick Jagger. It was Corey Grant Tippin. And he was the Who makeup the guy. He's the makeup guy oh. for all of the album stuff and for all of their stuff that they were doing at that time. And Wait then, a minute. I'm getting a picture in my head. Hold on. Corey goes to the bar. Yep. Yeah. I'm the crotch guy on Sticky Fingers. Oh, really? And Glenn O'Brien is the underwear guy when you unzip it and see it. So it's two different guys, but they were real vague about who they were going to tell you who was on the cover. Because think about it. 
if people thought or it was alluded to the fact that that might be Mick Jagger's penis on Sticky Fingers, people are going to buy that album a little bit more if it's some guy that they've never heard of's penis on it the album It was alluded cover. to. Oh, it was plenty alluded to. <laughs> it was like the Millie Vanilli penis. Uh... No, my Todger's plenty large. It's not a fake Todger. <laughs> Don't be saying that about my bits. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Just a morphine. Get us out of here, will you? I'll tell you what, I'm again impressed by the, the large cast of characters who support them. You know, again, like Ry Cooter and Jim Dickinson and Nicky Hopkins, Bobby Keys and Billy Preston making a couple appearances. Jim Price and Stu. Ian Stewart on a couple tracks, too. What a great team they were putting together at this point in the studio. They had guys like uh, Glenn and Andy Johns, Chris Kimsey, and uh, Jimmy Johnson down in uh, Alabama. He was a legendary guy behind the glass. And Jimmy Miller played some percussion on all of these albums as well. So he was involved. I think involved. he liked to get in there yeah. and kind of mix it up with them. Yeah, yeah. He liked to get involved. He liked to get his uniform dirty. He was a young kid when he started working with Steve Winwood during his days as well. So he, uh, quite an impressive uh, group of bands that he had worked with up until that point. So here they are, the young entrepreneurs. They've got their own label in association with Amit and everybody at Atlantic. Good partners, by the way. Uh, I don't think they ever regretted that, even when they moved uh, to Virgin years and years later. Uh, but that was a very fertile time through that period, the end of Decca, into Atlantic, and the albums they'd make for Atlantic for many, many years. Some of the great albums of the 70s and 80s, and we'll be talking about them as we move forward, talking about the fantastic Rolling Stones. It's just so much fun. Absolutely. And you got to give a lot of props to Mick Jagger for his business acumen. That dude is a smart man, a student at the London School of Economics until the band blew up. He understood the business side of the industry going in and learned it very quickly, which I think worked to their advantage in the long run and the decisions he made at this time during the craziness that they were going through very well thought out and his long-term vision just brilliant from the early days working with andrew lou goldham and then later with uh, prince uh, lowenstein they had some great business managers to work with them so they could concentrate on the other parts of it but Jagger's business acumen always paid off and always was in play whenever they made a plan. Whether it was to make an album or launch an album or market an album, he was always in it. And the funny thing is, he's still always in the middle of it. And Keith. But from different offices. <laughs> I'm not trading my office. If I'm Keith living in Connecticut most of the time, I'm not trading that for downtown. I can go to Manhattan. I can stay on a hotel room for a week if I want. I can afford it. I'm Keith goddamn Richards. Mick, you get New York. I'll take Connecticut. <laughs> and they're doing it now. Jagger getting back from the COVID, getting back on the road, rescheduling dates already like he's, you know, 68 instead of 78. Mm -hmm. 
he'll be playing live until the day he drops. He will be. You say that all the time, and I'm starting to think you're right. Man, (laughs) that's what he wants to do, and that's what he does. And I think he will continue to play. I think we'll see some solo things that he does. I think we'll see a big, wide variety of him moving forward, and Keith as well. It's going to be pretty exciting to see them perform until they're done. I believe that. I really think they will. I think you're right there. I really do. Well, it's been a fun run here on the podcast, just talking about the Stones and this key time in their amazing history. learning stuff too as we go but we want to hear from you as well if you've got things we missed or things that we didn't get enough of the facts right on we always want you to let us know you can do that through our email address imbalancehistory at gmail.com and you can always find all of our episodes on our website imbalancedhistory.com and we've got blogs and stuff up there too and you'll be able to get details about the upcoming nightclubbing event Uh, happening all over America over the next few weeks. So we'll be telling you more about that there at imbalancehistory.com. And you can find us on the social media front, too, on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, we try to keep up with all that stuff, but it's getting very busy in here. Wouldn't you say, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely say so. But we want to hear your feedback. We want to hear your comments. Anything you want to share with us, please feel free to share. And you can get the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on any podcast platform. We're surprised by that sometimes. (laughs) True. Thanks to Boldfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery for their support of the podcast. And that's going to do it on this episode about the unholy trio of albums that make the Rolling Stones the band that they are still today. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the Imbalanced History of Rolling Stones Rock and Roll.